Rusty Quill presents. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. West Side Fairy Tales is a dark fiction and horror podcast. The story you are about to hear is violent and disturbing. Exercise discretion before listening. Previously on Scars in Time. Ash has escaped from Ashley Colin's life with Mike only to find herself mired nearly 100 years in the past. Still not wholly sure what is and isn't real, she buckles down and plays by what rules she knows. If she finds the typewriter, then maybe she can regain control. But when she makes it to the attic, she finds the house only rises three floors. Faced with this knowledge, she has no choice but to fill her role as a housemaid to the unsettling Dr. Starling and his wife, and bide her time searching for an answer. Without further ado, Scars in Time, Chapter 14, The Sickness. sighed and rested more of the morning's dishes in the sink, trying to keep my tied-up blouse sleeves from dipping into the water again. Christine flowed in and out of the kitchen like living smoke. She was never fully there, but always I could see the traces of her lingering just behind me, the curve of her sleeve disappearing into the pantry, the scent of her light, sharp perfume fading even as I smelled it. The woman was patient, but firm, and kind despite her outward coldness. She hadn't threatened me with that steel spike in her hair again in the four intervening months since I'd arrived. She even allowed my sneaking around in search for a way home, so long as it didn't bother her husband's work, leaving me the run of the house save for his office and the basement. I had to travel downstairs often now 
given my new duties as the maid of this house, but I couldn't go much further than the basement woodpile. Dr. Starling had erected a wall between that area and the place beyond where he conducted his experiments. It wasn't the rough wall of the future that I remembered, however, but an obnoxiously friendly brick facade complete with lightly opaque windows and a hollow core steel door. It was as though somebody had transplanted an innocuous neighborhood clinic into the basement, complete with a brass sign reading Dr. Braun Starling, M.D., beside the door. The window in that wall did little to let me see inside. It opened only onto a tidy little reception office that served as a gateway of sorts into the larger areas beyond. I was watching a crew of filthy men, masons, entering the building when Dr. Starling filthy himself, emerged from the lone doorway with some short man in tow. They were both pointing to sections of the floor above me as I gathered wood for the stove upstairs. I stepped aside and they passed me without a word. We'd have to pass the wiring through the wood to here and then through here, the short man said, looking from a steel clipboard to the ceiling and then pointing. The doctor followed his finger from spot to spot, nodding along with his arms crossed. He realized, almost suddenly, that his glasses were too filthy to see through and he pulled them off to clean on his lab coat. Yes, yes, that all seems fine, the doctor said. Just so long as the seals around the extra wiring are all airtight at the places they pass into the room. It's a big load, the man continued, looking at the doctor. You have cleared all the numbers I sent you and Mr. Compson. The lights were one thing, but this... The doctor flapped his hand at the man's face, sprinkling it with dust. They were both turned to the wall now, and I took the chance to sneak inside the entrance of the basement clinic. Of course, of course, Mr. Gordon, the doctor said. It's all well above board. I put my head fully inside the door then catching a glimpse of the white-gray concrete surface of the floor behind the steel desk bolted in place near the window. I pulled my head back outside the door to make sure they weren't coming back, and they weren't. The doctor was speaking with the man much more closely now, his massive hand on the back of the man's neck as he drew shapes in the air in the direction of the clinic. I stepped further inside now, deep enough to finally hear the sounds of the construction going on at the back of the clinic. Beyond the desk, I could see the steel door leading to the main clinic, which was open and hanging slightly ajar into the small receptionist's office. I was somewhat shocked to see a second door hinged to the same frame and hanging into the clinic. This wasn't the door of a clinic, however, but the sort of steel door you'd see in a prison, complete with bars and a thick, rectangular lock. Past that, I could see one of the spaces I'd thought of as a horse stall, It was about that size, of course, but now the walls rose completely to the ceiling. A steel toilet and a thin metal bed frame were bolted into the walls. The door, not yet installed on the hinges, was heavy, flat steel complete with a wire mesh glass window. It lay against a larger wire mesh window set into the concrete opposite the bed. Black stenciled letters reading Observation 5 still lightly sparkling as they dried. Back to your chores, Ashley, the doctor said behind me, slapping me on my ass so hard my back straightened and I jumped about a foot out of my skin. I was shaking so badly I nearly dropped the arm full of wood I'd gathered. Pardon us, you nosy girl, the doctor (laughs) added, chuckling in that uncomfortable way he developed. I stepped up against the wall and both men walked past me. The short man, Mr. Gordon, gave me an apologetic smile and tried to tip a hat he wasn't actually wearing. I walked upstairs, embarrassed more at the lingering sting of the doctor's slap than that the doctor had touched me like that in the first place. The man's hand was so big he'd managed to hit all of my right cheek and he'd hit me hard. I tossed the wood into the stove with a little care for how well it had burned, hoping, in fact, that it'd smoke out the entire house. Maybe then I'd pass out from smoke inhalation and wake up in 1720. 
then I could just die of exposure in the forest and be done with this shit. Maybe I'd even make a go of it as a hunter or something. Ashley, Christine said from the door. I knew this reproach was coming the second the doctor had caught me downstairs. Christine had a sixth sense for my slightest mistake that would be impressive if it weren't so irritating. Yes, ma'am, I replied. She approached me without saying anything, running her fingertips over the surface of the prep table. In a few minutes, I'd be preparing tonight's dinner there with her, and she was probably just making sure I'd cleaned it after breakfast. She stopped just short of me and folded her hands into her sleeves. Were you snooping downstairs? She asked. Her expression was blank, but her eyes were twinkling, her version of laughing at me. I wondered if she knew her husband had smacked me in the ass like a misbehaving child. She probably wouldn't care either way. Yes, ma'am, I replied. Tisk tisk, she said, and that was it. She stepped back and her body hitched a bit. An eye imperceptible tick I'd only picked up on because we spent so much time together. She turned away from me and continued talking. We're having guests tonight, she said. Can you go to Ellison's and pick up enough ingredients to double the recipe? I saw the hitching tick again, and this time she bent her head slightly forward. I knew better than to ask after it, though, so I ignored it. I can go to Ellison's, I said, but I don't know what he'll have. Just get what you can, she said, leaving the room without saying another word. I sighed and stretched my back, picking through the pantry for a comfortable carry sack and then fetching my coat from my room upstairs. And my lantern. Hey. Hey, you. There's new merch in the merch store. So go fucking buy some, you hear me? You want a you want a fucking shirt, bro? You want a sick fucking shirt, bro? Go to the fucking merch store and check out our new shirt. It's a collage of all that pretty hard work Missy Yui puts together for season four. Fucking beautiful. You want to be fucking beautiful, don't you? Then go buy a shirt. You want to stay fucking beautiful? You better buy two fucking shirts. You better buy a fucking mug, too, and a fucking beanie. Don't let me find out you aren't wearing the merch. You better go to westsidefairytales.com slash merch and buy something. Yeah. Westsidefairytales.com slash merch. See you soon. Now back to our story already in progress. Mist hung thick over the cobblestones outside my, the doctor's, house. In this era, the cobbles were flat and level, but Old Town itself was no less dark, no less cold and forest-like. Even the leaves of the trees were that same odd gray color. My lantern cut an orange swath through the fog, the thick Fresnel lens on the front making the heavy thing like my own personal lighthouse. It made me think, every time I used it, of my own lost lantern sitting on the garret desk. I could still hear the typing, the clatter of the machine. It was insistent, though slightly diminished, here in the past. The bridge to Guncotton, which some called Compson Town or just the camp in this period, was a simple thing made of wood slats and stone bracings. It opened onto a dirt lot full of wet, sunken pavers and horse cart ruts. A simple train platform lay beside this, its rails and the thin dirt road next to it making up what people even now called the strip. A few folks raised hands to me as I walked, but most ignored me. The sun hadn't broken the clouds in days and everybody's mood was sour between the gloom and the constant, spitting rainfall. Moreover, There was a sense you didn't talk to people from Old Town when they passed through the camp, 
even if they were just the help. The nicest folk I ran across were either new to the camp or knew I worked for Dr. Braun and thought I might put in a good word for them. Despite the lack of a license, he had started seeing patients. Look at all this. Allison said to me before I even reached the front porch of the department store. He would have dragged anybody into this conversation. I wasn't special. If anything, I wish he'd gotten it out of his system before I arrived. The this he was talking about was a crew of maybe ten black men digging up the end of the strip closest to the bridge leading into town. They made a show of ignoring Ellison as they squared off portions of the dig and poured more concrete to match the finished sections behind them. Hello, Mr. Ellison, I said. Digging up the damn fuck strip and for what? He asked. He had a thin face and wiry build made all the worse by his choice of oversized work clothes. The thin, strapped leather suspenders he wore were so old and stiff they actually floated over top his shoulders. He stared at me until I sighed and asked, What are they digging up the strip for? For fucking nothing! He yelled at the working men. I saw at least two of them shaking their heads as they packed and shoveled the dirt. On the side of the street opposite them, two men in tweed suits were surveying parcels of land. I realized with a deep and sudden heartache that would be where the little bar, Colby's, would stand one day. It reminded me of Darcy and a brief, sharp wave of sadness hit me. I accidentally let out a sniffle. Hey there now, Ellison said. Don't you worry none about all that. Sorry I raised my voice. I know you're the help out there at the doctor's place, but that don't excuse my cursing. I didn't bother telling him that wasn't it. Just let him lead me inside the store. He shut the door behind me, but kept an eye on the men working outside. Damn if they ain't everywhere these days. He continued. Got a whole town of them up there now by this Tar Grady camp, building a damn coon city for themselves and all their broods. He scratched the sparse gray-black hair on his chest and stepped behind the counter. You keep away from them. You understand, girl? It sickened me to just nod along with that sort of sentiment, but there wasn't much else I could do. Allison didn't respect my opinions on turnips, much less the nature of American race relations in the 1920s. His own father had been a Confederate soldier in Virginia, and he still hung his daddy's old Dixie flag behind the counter. I had snapped at him once or twice when he was talking to me rudely. But all that had gotten me was reprimanded by Christine. It's a damn shame we're paying those types to do an honest man's work. He said. Now what you need, girl? I told him, and he set about in the spaces behind the counter gathering potatoes and raw meat. Fine day. Man was happy the boss could provide for him and his family at the company store. That's how we come to build this right here, my daddy and me. He stood and slapped the counter before going back to work. Young men don't need nothing but script, my opinion. He continued. Them up there in the camp these days are just looking, just looking for ways to waste that money on vice. They got hookers up there by the Eshtar Grady camp. Sorry for saying it, girl, but they do. Loose women that drink are destroying this country. And now we got them coloreds doing honest man's work and paving my damn strip. I handed him my bags and he set my order inside the burlap. You know who's responsible for oiling and tamping that strip all these years? Me. That's who. And now those ones out there are taking that money right out of my pocket. Ellison made a show of pulling the pockets of his tired old brown pants inside out. Yes, sir, was all I said, adding. It's a shame, sir. A damn shame, he said. And sorry again for cussing, but here it is. Damn shame. Damn shame. Good afternoon, Mr. Ellison, I said, turning to leave. I heard him stomp around the corner and rush to get the door for me. Now, 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 he said. 
Yeah, I wouldn't have a pretty thing like yourself out alone around them animals for a second. He opened the door, and I thanked him without taking my eyes off my feet. In my own time, just to be a smartass, I might have waved to the men working just to piss Allison off, but this was his world. Doing something like that in front of him might get one of these men beaten, run out of town, or worse. Now, 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 he said again, grabbing the fabric over my elbow. Uh, yeah, uh, let me ask you, Missy. I know you had a husband for a time, but I've heard you might be in the Marin Way sometime soon, and... I pulled away from him sharply. He cleared his throat. Uh, what I didn't mean to imply. It's just, my son is about your age, and we all do live in Old Town, even though you're the help. Good afternoon, Mr. Ellison, I said to his feet. My guts were in such a mess from how embarrassing the situation had gotten that I wanted to puke. I started walking home without another word back to him. Well, oh, God, God damn it. Well, good day to you, he said to himself. I turned back a few dozen paces down the road and saw he'd gone back to staring at the men working in the street. I'd almost made it back home when a woman stopped me beside the old town bridge. She was heavily tanned and had the worn sort of skin that comes from decades working in the sun. At my best guess, she could have been 35 or 50 years old. Maybe younger, though. Miss, miss, she said, voice urgent. She pulled a child of about 10 from behind her. His face had the direct, serious expression I'd seen on other children here. He was a worker probably crawling around in a mine somewhere up on the hill past the camp. I wondered which of those canvas tents or clapboard homes might be theirs. Yes, I asked, feeling ashamed of how clean I was compared to them. The woman's eyes, so light they were almost gold, were wet with unfallen tears. I knew what was going to come next because it happened almost every time I went to Ellison's. She would beg me to take her with me to see the doctor, or she'd give me some bribe and a name and plead with me to put her high up on some list she would never believe didn't exist. My husband, she said, he's, he's, if you're trying to get me to put in a word for you with the doctor, I'll save you all this, I said, waving my hand and trying to look sympathetic. I felt bad about how dismissive I was. But I'd learned, after the twentieth time at least, that it was better to cut the pitch short before it even began. I have no pool. I have no ability to help you. I mean nothing to the doctor. The woman took a deep breath and shook her head. No, she said, shouting despite herself. She took a second deep breath. I could see the boy was sobbing now and trying to face away from me so I couldn't see him cry. No, ma'am, that's not what I'm after. That's... We already got that. She shook her head, trying to find the words. We just need him back. We need my Paul back. He's been gone too long, and I... And I... She broke into tears, and I found myself casting embarrassed glances back toward the camp. Nobody was so much as looking in this direction. The woman's strength left her, and she sank to her knees pressing the heels of her palms to her eyes. The boy turned and wrapped his little arms around her head, patting her slowly on the back. No, Mama, he said. His child's voice had the gravity of a grown man's. It's gonna be okay. His eyes were hard when he looked at me, his face angry. You did this, it said. He ain't come back, the boy said. He come back sicker and he left and then he ain't come back at all. He raised his chin. He said, I got to be the band in the family before he left and I am. But I can't haul like them grown-ups can, so I can't earn as much. That raised chin trembled a bit and I saw the sad little boy trapped behind the glass-hard exterior. I need my paw back. Mama needs him back too. We, we need him or it's going to be bad. I don't understand, 
I said. The woman sniffed, composed herself, and hugged her son before standing. She gave me that same high-chinned look. I know you're down here in Old Town, and maybe that puts you higher than us, she said. I'm not higher than anybody, I insisted, but she raised a hand. If you are or you ain't, it doesn't matter, she said. But can you please just have them send us word? We're the O'Connors, and we live up on lot D-22. Wages here aren't enough between my boy and me to stay. Maybe if it was script, but it's money. And that Ellison wants a whole penny for just one sack of moldy potatoes. We can't afford it. She sniffed and looked at the sky and then back at me. If he's dead, ma'am, we can handle it, she said. If he's too laid up to leave or he's going to die soon, we'd appreciate seeing him. But don't not tell us because you think we're too stupid or dirt poor to take it. I know that doctor saw my Paul out of the kindness of his heart, and I am grateful for that, but we gotta know. We gotta be able to move on. I thought then of the prison-like cells in the new clinic and swallowed. She saw something in that on my face and stepped closer, grabbing my wrist over the grocery bag. Then her face was an inch from mine, so close I could smell the mint she'd been chewing to freshen her breath. There's talk about things going on down here in Old Town, she whispered gotta live in that, I know. And if you're part of it, well, shit. Life is hard for women on their own, okay? I I don't blame you. But I heard about things. Things in the big house especially. Men coming home from there like all the light in them's gone off. It don't matter. I won't tell. I won't judge. I just need to know. Her eyes were brighter than my lantern now. And I could see the muscles working in her jaw. I grabbed her wrist like I was fighting with her over my bag, moving my face close to her ear. Leave the camp tonight, I said. Just go. He's dead. Just go. I ripped her hand off my arm and pushed her away from me, prompting the boy to jump between us protectively. I stepped back, glaring at her. Leave me out of your affairs from now on, ma'am, I said loudly, though there wasn't anybody to hear. Or, at least, there wasn't anybody I could see. I turned without noting her reaction and left, though I could feel her and the boy watching me as I went. I honestly didn't know what happened to her husband. Men came and went through the house all day, and Dr. Starling had started seeing patients for routine, minor things in his office. None of them ever went down to the odd basement clinic, though I figured that would be changing soon. Perhaps it already had. I had no reason to expect anything bad had happened to the man. Nothing but a feeling. A feeling that felt like the slithering violation of Compson's touch. A feeling that reminded me of the sound of the doctor's laughter that first night. The mad guffawing that now seemed to infect even his slightest chuckle. Maybe the man had just run off on the woman. Or had suffered some accident drinking in the woods like the men of the camp liked to do. But I doubted it. I seriously doubted it. My lantern shone all the brighter as I made my way over the cobbles to the house that would one day belong to me. Slowing when I saw an apparition sitting on the front stairs. It was one of the doll things, the size of a man, and made from dozens of stacked wooden plates that clattered with every slight motion. Its crude face looked at me for a second when I shone my light on and through it. The illumination made the thing all but vanish, save for the sound it made. When I lowered the lantern, it went back to what it had been doing when I approached, slowly slapping itself in the face over and over in a simplistic pantomime of smoking a cigarette. I doused the lantern and went inside, hoping I wasn't too late to start dinner on time. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow! What a great story! But I have no fucking idea what's going on in it to you maybe it'd be a little easier to understand if i had access to like a written version of the show to follow along with and read back through maybe even some i I don't know behind the story information to clear up some of my my fucking questions oh wait right there yes (laughs) yeah it says right there join the west side fairy tales patreon today Get access to behind-the-story audio programs and fully laid-out chapters of this story, Scars in Time, and most of the West Side Fairy Tales back catalog for just five measly dollars a month. Wow, what a deal. Oh, it even says here you can get special merch packs and signed posters if you give a a, a more generous donation. Uh, that means he needs your money, people. This isn't a fucking charity. Okay. Go to patreon.com slash westsidefairytales today and subscribe for excellent behind-the-story content and more. That's patreon.com slash westsidefairytales. Link is in the description. And don't forget to watch my show if it's for... Ah, come on! I'm not doing this for free! Now back to our story, already in progress. I was just setting the table when the guests for the night arrived. Mr. Cutting, that familiar-looking blonde, and then Mr. Compson a while after them. I met Mr. Compson at the door, arriving just as he opened it himself without knocking. I'd been over there storing coats and preparing to light the lanterns beside the front door. He smiled when he saw me, handed me his coat, and then tracked water all the way to the dining room. I sighed, hung his coat, and went for the mop. Dinner was a quiet affair, with just the starlings, Cutting, and Compson eating together in the large dining room. The girl ate with me, 
remaining quiet and picking slowly through her food as though she weren't really interested. I wanted to ask her questions to probe her relationship to that man in this house, but dinner kept me busy. Cunning and Compson emptied four wine bottles between the two of them, which meant I had to keep running in and out of the dining room with every ring of the bell. Compson seemed to find this hilarious for some reason. I honestly don't think he felt the liquor he was drinking at all. Eventually, I got a second alone with the girl, and I tried to at least get her name out of her. You're not eating much, is how I started. We were sitting on opposite sides of the prep table. She looked up at me. She lacked, as I said, that blinding, glowing heat I was used to when the ghost decided to haunt me. But she had a wild rose sort of beauty, natural and unpracticed, not alluring so much as nice to look at. She gave me an exhausted smile. I don't get hungry much anymore, she said. Mr. Cutting's work keeps him occupied, and... She swallowed and looked at one of the half-full wine bottles. She stole a glance at the dining room and then snatched it up, taking a long, thirsty swig, a breath, and then another drink. And I think it's bad for his health. She rocked the bottle on the table, back and forth. I reached out, took it, and had a long sip myself. I was surprised how hard it hit me. Then I realized I hadn't had a drink in months. Time had slipped by in a blink. He's sick? I asked. She shook her head. Just not well, she replied. He's getting to be like a piece of driftwood. The kind you think is heavy until you pick it up and find the water's pulled everything out of it. All the stuff that gave it weight. That's pretty well said, I told her. She smiled at me, but she quickly returned her eyes to her plate. We travel a lot, she replied. I read most of the time. What do you do out there? I asked. Her eyes flashed at me, hard and defensive for a single moment, but then tired again. Empty, blue driftwood. Mr. Cunning does what he's told, she said softly. She picked her fork up and swirled her food around the plate. And I help, however I can. How, how do you help? I asked. I had a tingling feeling on the back of my neck. Her eyes rose to mine slowly, lips parting. I could hear the typewriter then, beating away in the unbuilt garret. Dust fell in little piles on the table. Coraline! Cutting called from the other room. The moment passed and the girl was just a girl again, blinking and looking past me to the dining room. Coraline again, I thought, not knowing what it could mean. Yes, sir, she called. Hey, go on and get Mr. Uh, Dr. Starling what we brought for him, he said. You make sure it's nice and dried before you bring it in. Yes, sir, the girl said, jumping up and moving to the exit. I watched her go, standing myself a moment later when Christine rang the bell again. Please clear the table, Ashley, she said when I walked into the room. I got to it, cleaning the place settings one at a time, starting with Compson. He ignored me completely, and I was glad for it. The thought of him touching me, that wormy feeling caused me to shiver. By the time I came back, Coraline was in the dining room as well, laying out a thick leather satchel and unbinding a series of ties. I picked up Cutting's plate this time and he grabbed me, squeezing my wrist for just a second and smiling. I had a sudden moment of vertigo and then it was 1993 again, and I was a high schooler, taking out the trash in front of my parents' home. Only I was seeing myself do it this time, watching with his eyes. The contact broke and the moment faded. I felt like I was about to fall, but caught my balance and took the plates away. Only Christine seemed to notice the slight hitch in my step. 
I'm glad I was clearing the table and not setting it then, because I would have had dropped anything I was carrying when I walked back inside the room. Coraline stood behind the painting, all but engulfed by the massiveness of the artwork. All the eyes in the room were on it as well, but only I spoke. The raft of the Medusa, I said, taking a step forward. Thompson turned to favor me with a sneer. I didn't bear him the sparest glance. It was there, there, my second vision from all those months ago, in my time at least. It wasn't the real thing I knew, but I could feel something from it I hadn't felt from the replica in Boulder. His hand, the painter, Jericho. What sort of education do they give girls where you're from? Thompson asked. Or do you recognize this from a museum tour? Maybe a postcard? I ignored him and kept walking, my eyes searching over every soft dab of paint and muddled cloud. Most of all, I saw the red there in the man's hand, the brilliant scarlet cloth raised in signal to the distant light of the rescuing ship. I dimly realized my hand was raising over my hip. Ashley? Christine said, repeating herself more insistently when I didn't respond. Ashley, I believe our guests are in need of some drinks. I felt hurried now, rushed even. I needed to get to the painting. I needed to touch it. I could feel, even as I raised my hands, the flat steel discs of the typewriter keys beneath my fingertips. Where do you think you're going? Thompson asked. He had stood and placed himself between me and the painting. His hand touched my chest, right on the sternum. I could feel the wormy invasion for only a moment. The space around him seemed darkly purple. It's dark even as the clouds in Jericho's painting. In his eyes, in the feeling of those fingers, was the whiteness of the corpse at the base of the raft. I slapped him backhand across the face and the house clapped with thunder. Shaking so suddenly, Coraline nearly dropped the painting. Compson himself stumbled, took a step back, and then sat in his chair as though something were holding him down. Ashley! Christine yelled, and I heard something splatter on the table. I would have kept walking if I didn't see it splash up the front of the Medusa as well. A constellation of red dots dancing across the softest of Jericho's muted colors. I turned and saw Christine reeling on her feet, eyes rolled back in her head and blood streaming over her bottom lip. The doctor and I caught her together just before her head hit the table. My lord, Dr. Starling said, looking at me. What have you done? For a moment I thought he was talking about how I'd slapped Compson. Then I realized he was blaming me for whatever was happening to Christine. He shook his head and nodded toward the kitchen before I could respond. Never mind that. Help me get her to our room. I honestly just wanted to drop her and run for the painting, but I couldn't have gotten to it. Cutting and Coraline were already dabbing at the fresh blood stains in a panic, trying to get them off before they set into the paint. Compson had slithered from the room like a worm only the barest flash of his coat visible through the open front door as we made our way into the central hall. God damn it, Cutting! The doctor yelled. Leave the damn painting and help me up the stairs with Christine. This girl hasn't a hard muscle in her fucking body. I glowered at my supposed employer, but he didn't notice. Cutting bumbled out of the dining room with Coraline close in tow, both of them wide-eyed and purposefully not looking at me. Cutting grabbed Christine's legs, shouldering me out of the way in the process. I nearly fell off the landing before I regained my balance. Get hot water and some of the cheap sheets we use for your bedding, girl. Go! Dr. Starling shouted at me. I wanted to protest. Honestly, I wanted to ignore him entirely and tear the painting from Coraline's hand and let it work whatever magic it could on me the energy in the room was too strong to resist. I cursed under my breath and ran for the kitchen, hoping at least to finish the task with enough time to hunt down the painting. 
Coraline was gone by the time I got upstairs and set the hot water and sheets beside the bed. Dr. Starling was kneeling over his wife with a stethoscope and tongue depressor, staring into her throat while her body bucked and jumped feebly beneath him. Cutting stood close by, wringing his hands and looking around the room for either something to do or a reason to escape. Either would have made sense. I chose the latter, quietly backing toward the door while the doctor busied himself with Christine. I'd nearly gotten to it when he turned and pointed at me. No, he shouted. You stay here and help. I don't know what it is you want with that damn painting all of a sudden, but you're not getting it. Not not while Christine is in this condition. He slapped Cutting's arm. Go find that daughter of yours, or whatever she is, and take that painting from her and put it down in my office. Should I hang it to? Cutting asked. The doctor gave him a severe look, and the man all but ran from the room. Then he gestured for me to come to the bed. I did, grimacing when I saw Christine's face. Her usual somber, practiced dignity had gone completely. Her face was swollen and tinged a greenish-purple color. As I watched, the doctor dug his fingers into her mouth and flicked a few tablespoons of blood onto the sheets I'd brought. What have you done? He whispered under his breath. I didn't do anything, I said. I wasn't even looking at her. He slapped me so hard I tripped over my own feet. Before I could stand, he was overtop me, holding me by my collar and slapping my face forehand and backhand until I couldn't think. When he finally let me go, I crumpled into a ball and held my hands over my head. Peering through a swollen eye and my own fingers, I saw him point at me. That's enough lip from you, young lady. He said, I will not be talked to like that by a servant. I don't care where you're from or what you mean to my wife. His expression remained serious, but he laughed quite suddenly. Not some sinister chuckle, but a deep, slow laugh that escaped his barely parted lips. It vibrated in his chest like an engine turning over. He shook it off and grabbed me from the floor, making me flinch again. Then he tossed me against the side of the bed. You and you alone are responsible for this relapse, he said, speaking almost under his breath again. He put his hand on my shoulder and pointed to his wife. I wanted so badly for him to not be touching me, it almost made me sick. She's been fine, fine, since we moved here for months before you came. Now she's getting the hiccups again, coughing blood. He sucked in a breath and I realized he was trying to force down another round of that odd, trembling laughter. Undress her, he said, digging in his little black doctor bag. I hesitated and he looked up at me. I couldn't see his eyes for the reflective glare in his glasses. Do not make me repeat myself again for the duration of this procedure. I stripped Christine to her waist. The looseness of the decorative robes she wore made it all the easier, though I could feel myself blushing when I saw her exposed breasts. They were small and dark and covered with blood from where it dripped past her chin. In a second, I had her fully undressed, casting the tangle of soiled robes aside and covering her legs and hips with a sheet in a half-assed attempt to fend off the chill in the room. Very good, the doctor said. He was preparing a syringe on the bedside table. Years of living with Darcy told me immediately the concoction wasn't prepared in a stable laboratory. The bottle itself bore the old glue stains of whatever label it had originally come with. It was capped with what looked like medical gauze tied in place with cord. The substance filled the wide-bodied steel syringe like syrup. The doctor had to empty and refill the thing several times shaking the bottle between each attempt in order to get the right consistency. Hold her here and here, he said, pointing to Christine's throat and the base of her stomach, just above her pelvis. 
When I say so, put a tremendous amount of pressure down on those points. Use your entire body weight if you have to, but do not release her. He gave me a very direct look. I will kill you if you fail and she's harmed in any way. I looked away from him and got into place the way he told me, thinking about preparing his coffee the next morning with the box of powdered rat poison beneath the sink. He used three fingers to measure a spot just beneath his wife's right clavicle and slid the heavy-barreled needle into place with his thumb as a guide. He retracted the plunger, filling the needle with her blood. My stomach churned when I saw the black oil surge forward to mix with and muddle the fresh redness. He took a breath. Now, he said, depressing the plunger. The result was almost immediate. Christine's spine arched, lifting me into the air. I managed to stay in place, however, holding down on her throat so hard I was afraid I would crush her windpipe like a reed. The doctor did nothing to help me in this, but retreated to his bag and prepared another syringe. This from a typical bottle of morphine. He readied the shot and set it on the bedside, watching as I broke into a sweat from the stress of holding her down. Then I saw it. Or rather, I felt it. The reason I was holding her throat and pelvis. Something was squirming beneath the woman's skin. Like a worm, it burrowed from the injection site toward her neck. In a second, I felt it pushing against the improvised tourniquet of my hand. Then it bit me. Nibbled, really. Poking right through the surface of her skin and jabbing me. Help me! I shouted at the doctor. He was leaning against the wall and chuckling to himself. That horrible internal vibration. Christine bucked again and I nearly fell off her. I shifted and put the entire weight of my body onto her now, not caring if it killed her, even hoping it would if it might spare her the horror of this thing beneath her skin. It changed direction and slithered toward my other hand, moving with such speed I was sure it was shredding her internal organs to pieces. It seemed to be growing larger as well, gaining mass as it moved. Then it reached my hand, and again I could feel it nibbling at me. The pain wasn't half as bad as the terror I felt in my heart at that moment. It was like I was holding the devil captive in a bottle of flesh. As suddenly as it had changed course, the thing vanished inside her. It disintegrated and smoothed out until her flesh was as pale and unblemished as it had been before the injection. I stayed in place regardless waiting for Christine's entire torso to become an amorphous blob and snap my head off in a single bite. Step back now. Thank you, the doctor said. I did what he said as quickly as I could, though I could barely move my arms. The fight had completely fatigued me, and all my muscles felt like putty. I found myself almost wishing I'd never seen that copy of the Medusa. Almost. She's stabilizing, the doctor said. Very good. He looked at me and I realized I couldn't see his eyes at all. Something on his glasses caught the light and glowed gently yellow in two perfect discs. He moved around the bed toward me and I stepped backward for the door. Do you have <laughs> any any idea <laughs> what you almost did? The morphine needle he'd prepared dangled from his fingers. He was walking hunched over like a man with a bad back and chuckling audibly now. What you... <laughs> what you might have cost me with your little theatrics... <laughs> little theatrics, girl. His tongue flicked out over his lips, stroking the underside of his mustache. I held up my hands and turned my head toward the door. In the briefest second, I wasn't looking at him. He closed the distance and wrapped his massive hand around my throat. 
He slammed me against the wall and then I was sliding up, 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 until I was dangling by the neck. My legs kicked uselessly under me. What are you really? (laughs) He asked, raising the needle to my left eye. It was close enough I could feel my eyelashes catching on the dripping barb. My skin burned as the blood flow to my brain slowed. He was killing me, in earnest. Come on in out of the rain, little stray, huh? <laughs> Shit on my rug. <laughs> but Mr. Thompson said you, you needed to be kept around, said you're a tricksy one. A little tricksy one, but keep you around. How much of you do I need to keep, though? <laughs> I'd wrapped my hands around his wrist and was trying desperately to kick free of him. To at least destroy his nuts before he killed me. Put her down, Bron. Christine said from the bed. He looked over her and smiled, jabbing me in the neck with the morphine and pressing the plunger with the speed of a snake bite. Don't let me find you sleeping where you can't wake up, he whispered, and I could hear that laughter down in the guts of him. Then he dropped me. My legs collapsed as though they weren't even there, and I lay on the floor for a second, catching my breath. The morphine had hid immediately but it was competing for dominance with a pre-death dose of adrenaline. That will be all, Ashley, Christine said. Thank you for your help. She looked like shit, but all the quiet dignity had returned. The blood on her chest and mouth had been replaced by a fresh slick of black grease. I didn't bother asking her if she was okay. Just stood and dragged myself into the hall as quickly as I could. Children, children, gather around and place your hand in the air. That's right. Fingers splayed wide, wide, wide so the wind can pass between them. Carry that sweet scent of trade on to the nose of the witch. We are gathered here today in non-existence, awaiting the strike of the pen, the clatter of the keyboard... The moment when I might be introduced to the ears of the masses so that our work can spring forth anew in the hearts of millions. But that we are carried on the wings of angels. Say true, our words must be electrified. Amen. Our words must be clarified. Amen. Our words must be carried wide. Amen. So go out there, little brothers, little sisters, and spread the gospel on social media. Put us on Reddit. Put us on the Facebook. And put us on the Twitter. Praise her. Share us far and wide so that I might become and my story made clear. At WS Fairy Tales on Twitter. Westside Fairy Tales on Facebook and Instagram. The link tree is in the description. Praise her name. Praise her. Mm, praise her, yes. And let us together drive this sin from gun cotton. Mm. Raise your hands now. Raise your hands. Now back to our story, already in progress. I stumbled down the hallway to my room, barely able to hold myself up between the morphine and the exhaustion. Then I couldn't hold myself up, 
and I collapsed onto the landing over the great central hearth. I heard footsteps behind me and waited for that big, hard hand to grab me on the back of the neck like a kitten and drag me downstairs. I imagined myself naked and strapped to that table I'd seen in the basement clinic. Nobody to hold back one of those things that had been in Christine once the doctor injected me. Instead, a soft, feminine hand cupped my chin and turned my face. It was her, eyes shining radiation blue in the blurry haze of morphine. She lifted me to my feet and my vision cleared some. She leaned me against the wall. It was the ghost, I was sure. She was wearing Coraline's simple clothes, and only her eyes seemed to be glowing, not the entirety of her, but I was sure. This little girl was so curious, she said to me. Her fingers, clad in tight, brown riding gloves, stroked my hair away from my face. I could feel my breath coming in tight, little gasps. I've always loved curious she smiled but you I saw the way you looked at me you want to meet him and that's a way out of here okay I get it but you saw those tiny little details you really saw saw the way someone with vicious startling dreams sees You see me, don't you? Not this little girl, but me. I see you, I gasped, trying to keep my head up. She rested her hand on my forehead and pushed my head back for me. And am I beautiful? Yes. I said, and she kissed me. Her mouth was real and human, but I could taste the other on the girl's tongue. The thing just behind the flesh. I would have broken away from her if I had the strength. But I didn't. Let's go to bed then, she whispered to me. And I fell asleep in her arms as she dragged me down the hall. on scars in time. The doctor's threats and his condition make it all too clear that Ash's time in the Starling household is rapidly coming to a close. Doped on morphine and left to fend for herself, she's swept into the arms of a girl with the same name as a long-ago student, Coraline, and bearing the same ethereal glow as her golden ghost. With the clock set against her, Ash will be forced to delve into the house's most awful secrets, or risk becoming one of them. I hope you'll join us next episode for Scars in Time, Chapter 15, The Doctor. And until then, as always, stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. Original audio filmed on location in Sutton, West Virginia, and Louisville, Kentucky. Engineering and sound design by WSF Productions, LLC. 
episode art by Yui Breedlove. All content herein copyright 2021, WSF Productions, LLC. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning Westside Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast, due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.